This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. It's been a very interesting year for the healthcare industry. On the one hand, we're seeing tremendous innovation and progress in areas like immuno-oncology, gene editing, but we're also seeing a big debate about skyrocketing drug prices, and regulatory uncertainty has been holding back merger activity. Jamie Rubin, who heads U.S. healthcare research at Goldman, is here today to talk about some of the movements in the sector. Jamie, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Jamie, you recently hosted Goldman's annual global healthcare conference, and you brought together investors, industry analysts, and company leaders to discuss trends in the healthcare sector. How would you describe the tone that emerged from that conference, and what were some of the big themes that investors mm-hmm. are focused on? Right. So the tone of the conference, I would describe as cautiously optimistic. This was our 37th annual healthcare conference, where we bring together about 120 companies and about 450 institutional investors. And keep in mind, Jake, that healthcare is the second worst performing subsector of the S&P this year. So the mood isn't great. But my sense is that the mood is starting to pick up a little bit, and that's really driven by the following three themes. Number one, innovation remains alive and well throughout pharma and biotech, particularly in pharma, with major advances in oncology, such as immuno-oncology. We're waiting for important data in Alzheimer's. We've had some new exciting drugs and new data in diabetes. So there's a lot of positive new product stories. Secondly, utilization trends have been stronger, and that has really propelled the medical device industry. It's one of the better sectors in healthcare this year. And thirdly, M&A remains a persistent theme across all subsectors of healthcare. I think what's holding people back a little bit are some of the headwinds that the industry faces, such as drug pricing concerns, as well as the upcoming election, where there's still tremendous uncertainty as to how a new president will focus on drug prices, what the composition of Congress will look like. So there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. You mentioned immuno-oncology. Let's talk a little bit more about that. You joined us on the program in 2014. You were our first guest. Thank you. Um, You said at that time that immuno-oncology was the most exciting development the cancer field had seen in decades. And you talked a lot about how it was essentially curing cancer for subsets of patients. Mm -hmm. Now, a year and a half later, you've increased your estimate for the size of the sector to $35 billion by the year 2025. So what's kept you optimistic about that sector? Well, Jake, it continues to be the most exciting development across all of pharma and biotech. And the reason why we continue to be optimistic about it is because there continues to be more and more and more evidence that immuno-oncology drugs, such as PD-1 antibodies, and there are two on the market now, continue to show efficacy in more and more and more tumor types. And for those of you who aren't familiar with immuno-oncology, these are drugs that actually boost the immune system to target and kill cancer cells. So we are learning that these drugs have efficacy across numerous different tumor types. And we're continuing to see durability of responses. So patients who respond to these drugs continue to respond over long periods of time. That's different from chemotherapy. Chemotherapy destroys tumors, but then your body develops a resistance to the chemotherapy and it grows back. back. That's right. So that is the key difference. So yeah, we did. We recently raised our forecast again because the pie keeps expanding. That's primarily why we continue to be optimistic. And what's driving the greater utilization? Is it being used for more diseases or it's, it's just by used, more, well, more doctors who are growing confident in prescribing? Right now, immuno-oncology drugs are being used for three different tumor types, melanoma, renal, and lung. And there will be use in 
another 15 different tumor types over the course of the next three to five years. One of these drugs was just approved for Hodgkin's lymphoma. There's another drug that was filed with the FDA for bladder cancer, head and neck. Glioblastomas, you heard Jimmy Carter got one of these drugs and his brain cancer went away because of immuno-oncology. We've seen a rapid uptake of these drugs in all three of these tumor types. In lung in particular, which is such a devastating disease, lung cancer, where death rates are very high, the new PD-1 antibodies have rapidly become standard of care in second-line lung. And we expect that these drugs will become again, standard of care and frontline lung in the not too distant future. So you're seeing these drugs becoming backbone therapy across multiple tumor types. And the next sort of wave that we'll see is combination therapy. So checkpoint inhibitors combined with other checkpoint inhibitors that should extend survival in many patients. So in combination therapies, one yep. of the issues around that has been price. Um, Absolutely. So explain today the dynamic around pricing of combination therapies. Well, it's interesting because in many disease types, you use combination therapies. HIV is treated with a cocktail therapy. Most cancers are treated with combinations. Chemotherapy combined with targeted therapy so it's nothing novel. Cancer. So combination no. is nothing novel, but right. the issue here is the price tag, sticker shock. Because as you know, the checkpoint inhibitors cost about $120,000 for four or five rounds of therapy. That's about what new cancer drugs cost. And then when you combine that with another new oncology drug, that's another $100,000. So you're talking about two dollars to $300,000 for combination therapy. And it's not just immunotherapy, it's also in other areas of oncology like multiple myeloma, where they're building evidence that new types of multiple myeloma drugs are more effective combined than as monotherapy. One of the terms that was thrown around at this conference called ASCO in Chicago was financial toxicity. Because while these drugs are showing spectacular results and expanding the survival curve, when you think about, well, wait a minute, how much is this going to cost? That's creating sticker shock. You talked a little bit about Alzheimer's, another disease that's been very much in focus for your team. Right. Uh, and of course, in the broader public, there's not been a single Alzheimer's drug approved since I think 2003. Correct. Is there any reason to be optimistic that that could change soon in the in the near term? Well, everybody is certainly term? hoping. Everybody is hoping that something will happen. It's possible. The industry is focusing its development in what are called disease modification drugs. So not drugs that treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's, but drugs that slow the progression of the disease moderate the progression of Alzheimer's. And there is a new class of Alzheimer's drugs, they're called A-beta antibodies, that target plaques in your brain, and they basically sweep up those plaques. And we will be getting important information end of this year. A large phase three clinical trial will be reporting out later this year. We'll see if it works. Um, as you know, the failure rate is very high. It's something like 99.9%. .9%. And the problem is, is that we don't really understand the nature of the disease. We don't understand how Alzheimer's is caused. So it's even challenging. Even the theory on cleaning up plaque is at That's this point not just even, a theory. It's just a theory, exactly. Right. And these drugs are not proven mechanisms. So the industry is a little bit flying blind, but I am more optimistic that we're moving down the right path because the medical community and the 
research community has a much better understanding of the disease and have designed these trials much better than earlier trials. So we've learned, the industry has learned from its past mistakes, applying those learnings to these new trials, and that's why the probability of success is higher. Still low, but higher. So let's get back to cost for a second. Some of these drugs or combination therapies that are hundreds of thousand dollars, are the payers pushing back now? No, they're not pushing back. One reason why they're not pushing back, certainly with the immuno-oncology class of drugs, is because the data is so compelling. These drugs are bending the survival curve. And if you can show improvements over survival compared to older therapies, the payers are not pushing back. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out when we do get serious combinations on the market because we only have one combination approved in melanoma. And to my understanding, there hasn't been any pushback. But it does raise the bar for companies putting high price tags on drugs that don't show the same kind of outcomes results as some of these newer immuno-oncology drugs. If you can't demonstrate that you're improving the chances of survival, it's going to be difficult to justify those high prices. So obviously this has been a big part of the presidential election, not, not yeah. the focus necessarily, but it's certainly come up from time to time in the election this year. We're not going to predict the outcome of the election here today, but talk about the impact that that uncertainty around yeah. the election outcome <laughs> has had on the sector and how different outcomes yeah. might impact pricing. It's a major source of uncertainty, and it actually started to impact the sector last September when Hillary Clinton issued a tweet criticizing drug pricing. And of course, that was in response to a couple of what I would consider outlier companies that have been abusive in their pricing practices. And there were some Senate hearings and a lot of and visibility on these issues. And there have been Senate hearings yeah. and a lot of visibility on those issues, exactly. And it's been a key part of both candidates' campaigns. And so I think that the uncertainty for the industry is that we do anticipate that there will be a lot more headline risk, a lot more focus on the high cost of drugs. And it's not just price increases. It's also just the cost of a multiple sclerosis drug or a drug for rheumatoid arthritis or the cost of cancer drugs. It's a major focus. The question is, what can they do about it? What can a new administration do about the high cost of drugs? And that's what I think is difficult for us and investors to handicap is trying to quantify what the risk is to the industry. Because today, there really is no mechanism to control those costs. There's no mechanism to push back on- No, I mean, Congress, has, on... Congress has not really legislated no. that space. And, and, if and we it's have, come up from time to and time. And it has come up from, you know, President Obama tried to legislate changes, even with the Senate and the House controlled by Democrats, and still wasn't able to get through changes that would have impacted Medicare Part D drugs. So it's a challenge. What we're seeing is not so much in the political sphere, but in the private sector sphere with PBMs. PBMs are actually having quite an impact on Explain the cost PBMs of drugs. Just for a Pharmacy second. benefit managers, yep. these are companies that are hired by employers, such as a Goldman Sachs, to manage the pharmacy benefit for employers. Right. And they set up a formulary or a list of preferred drugs. And they've been successful implementing not price controls but pushing back on price and we've on seen that of the payers, uh, right yeah. and we've seen that play out in the hepatitis C space we're seeing it playing out today with the new drugs called PCSK9s those are drugs that treat hypercholesterolemia people with very very high levels of cholesterol they're expensive drugs and the PBMs have pushed back and there's been a lot of consolidation in the PBM space so they have a right. fair amount of the, power the PBMs and the distributors right and we've also seen pricing pressure play out ironically, in the generic drug space, where you would expect generic drug price deflation. That's what they're there for. They're there to cut costs. 
but we've just come off a two-year period of generic drug price inflation, in large part because the FDA has been slow to approve generic drugs. So in categories such as dermatology and opioids, where there has been fewer competitors, the generic drugs companies have been able to raise prices, right? That's starting to go away. Let's talk a bit about biosimilars. Since the first biosimilar drug was approved last March, there's been a lot of interest from all sides in this space and its potential over time to provide meaningful value to patients. Explain the role that biosimilars can play in the ecosystem of pharma and what's the trajectory for this market in the near and medium term? The idea behind biosimilars is to provide a cheaper price alternative to biological drugs. Biosimilars are, in effect, generic copies of biological drugs or drugs that are developed from human or live substances like DNA, so different from pills. The promise of biosimilars is quite big because the number of biologicals going off patent over the next five to seven years is very large, and the actual total value of revenues of biologicals is something like 60 to $80 billion. So there's certainly a very large opportunity. The problem is, is that the market is really in its infancy, and there are a number of barriers to entry. So there are few number of competitors. Number one, it's difficult and expensive to manufacture these drugs because they're not little white pills. Number two, it requires a company to actually sell the drugs with the sales force. Generic companies don't have to sell their drugs. And the reason why is because biosimilars are not exact copies. They're not interchangeable. They are similar to the innovative copy. So you don't get the automatic substitution. You don't you get the, the automatic generic, substitution, exactly. Which means so you that you've got to build force. a sales force and really deploy them. Exactly. And, and you need to do long clinical trials. These are complex drugs. These are complex medicines. And it requires larger trials and more complicated trials. So you need manufacturing. You need R&D expertise and you need a Salesforce or a commercial infrastructure. And most small generic drug companies don't have that. So our sense is that biosimilar competition will probably be within the large pharmaceutical companies. But so far, the biosimilar impact has been very small. The deal landscape shifted quite a bit in the last several months. There were some really high-profile transactions that fell through in the first half of this year, primarily because of regulatory concerns and some moves that the Treasury made on inversions. How has that impacted companies' appetites for uh, deals? I would say the companies still have a high appetite for deal-making. Inversions are over. It's very unlikely that you will see large companies in the U.S. try to invert again. No one's going to take that risk. No one's going to take that risk again, right. right? So I think that appetite has gone away. But the appetite to acquire new platform technologies, new growth assets is still very strong. I think what's interesting is that there have only been one or two deals in the biopharma sector in the last 12 months, substantial deals, deals over $5 billion. Uh, with the exception of Shire merging with Bixalta, there really have only been a small handful of deals. We think that's because in this recent underperformance of biotech stocks, there's still a very large spread between the bid-ask. The sellers aren't quite ready to sell yet because their share prices were so much higher six months ago. They still remember. They remember where their stock was was, six months ago. So there are no mood to sell today. But that could change six months from now. Over time, and people just get used to a different price expectation. That's right.
Stocks don't remember where they were yesterday. And I assume a lot of the appetite is coming from mature, bigger companies that are looking for growth. And it's interesting, growth. it's not just pharmaceutical companies, it's biotech companies too. And another major thing we as a team have talked about is this blurred lines thesis, that the industries are converging. And they have really converged, not just in terms of what they look like today, but in terms of their growth rates, in terms of their margin stories. It's really one industry. It's not two separate industries. But yes, there are a number of big companies who biotech companies and pharmaceutical companies that have large balance sheets, have a lot of cash on their balance sheet, and yes, maturing portfolios. So they need growth, yep. and they want to use their cash to buy growth. So other than the passage of time, are there other things that could catalyze deals in the second half of the year? I think having the election behind us will probably remove somewhat of an overhang. At least there will be some certainty as to which way we go with this. I think right now nobody really knows not only who is going to win, but what the priorities of that new administration will be. And what and the so, makeup of the House and, and what the, the make, And that is really is probably what yeah. is even more important than who the actual president will be, the makeup of the House. So if we continue to have divided government, that would probably unleash a lot of deal activity. And I think that CEOs also want better sense of what could happen with tax reform, because if tax reform is a high priority with the new administration, They'll be less inclined to want to use their international cash to buy companies and wait to see if maybe we get tax repatriation or a different corporate tax scheme. Okay, Jamie, moving beyond politics and just to close, what are the trends in the industry that bear watching over time? What are the new and exciting things that are happening that maybe aren't getting the same attention as some of the, right. the issues we've talked about today? I think what we're seeing is the advent of some really exciting science, really exciting innovation. Gene therapy, for example, there are a number of new IPOs or new small biotech companies that are focused on gene therapy. And gene therapy is the essential cure. If you can just cure somebody with one shot of gene therapy, that's really exciting. So we're seeing really exciting data in hemophilia and other indications, and gene therapy seems to be really making some traction. We're also seeing exciting new data with gene editing, going in and, and actually editing your DNA. That's very early. It's not yet in clinical trials, but there are a number of recent IPOs, companies focused on this new technology. And thirdly, another very exciting area is called CAR-T. That's an area that is under the umbrella of immunotherapy, but it's even more powerful than the checkpoint inhibitors, but also a lot more technically challenging. But all three technologies bear watching over the next six to 12 months. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on June 17, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. 
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.